Hey everyone, this is Cobain. Today we'll be continuing our series of videos on the concept of tradition in the New Testament. If you remember my last video, what I said I was going to argue is that the New Testament not only uses the language of tradition, but has a very distinct concept of what apostolic tradition is, why it is authoritative, and how it is transmitted through the churches throughout the generations. This concept can be illumined by looking at the language Irenaeus uses for apostolic tradition and the language of St. Basil in identifying what exactly constitutes tradition. I should say in this um, video explicitly that while it is not incorrect to say that scripture is part of tradition, insofar as scripture is something which is handed down from Christ to the church of the ages, I think a more precise model distinguishes the two in relation to each other. So scripture corresponds to the person of the Son, it's the logos of God spoken textually into the world, and tradition corresponds to the person of the Holy Spirit. It is the church's spirit-inspired reception of that word and her comprehension of it throughout each generation and in dialogue with the questions raised by every age. Before we get into the main substance of today's video, I wanted to say that if you have, yet, if you have not yet become a patron, but you enjoy these videos and you want to continue to see them on a regular basis, your patronage really does help. As uh, patronage increases, I will be able to reduce and then ultimately eliminate ads entirely, something which I don't know if anyone's noticed, but I have begun to do this, reduce the um, quantity of ads on certain videos, but I really would like to eliminate them entirely and keep as much content as I can available to a general audience because I think it's it's important stuff. The top tier of my Patreon guarantees at least one hour per month of one-on-one -on -one discussion, tutoring, whatever you'd like to call it. It's your time. You can talk about whatever you want as long as I have something to say on the subject. And there is also some exclusive content provided in each of the tiers, though as I mentioned, my preference is really to keep as much stuff free as I can. So with that said, let's begin with a word of prayer. Illumine our hearts, O Master, who lovest mankind with the pure light of thy divine knowledge. Open the eyes of our mind to the understanding of thy gospel teachings and plant also in us the fear of thy blessed commandments that trampling down all carnal desires. We may enter upon a spiritual manner of living, both thinking and doing such things as are well-pleasing unto thee. For thou art the illumination of our souls and bodies, O Christ our God. Unto thee do we ascribe glory, together with thy Father, who is everlasting, thine only good and life-creating spirit, both now and ever, to the ages of ages. Amen. Remember how we began. By discussing St. Basil's reference to the specifically unwritten tradition, which he identifies as something distinct from Scripture, though related to it, and being transmitted from the apostles through the church to the present day. And Basil contextualizes this specifically in the church's liturgical life, 
We've explored how the witness of the Divine Son in Scripture is brought to memory by the Holy Spirit who apprehends the thoughts of God and realizes the mind of Christ in us through the Church's concrete historical development, development within which the Apostles entrust the tradition to the bishops whom they set over the Churches, the bishops being expected to carry on this chain of transmission. In this context, Timothy is instructed to continue the public reading, that is the liturgical reading of Scripture, as well as teaching and exhortation, 1 Timothy 4.13. Timothy is called to remember those sacred writings which are able to make wise unto salvation in Jesus Christ, and simultaneously to remember the tradition he was taught because of its apostolic source. Note in this light how much sense it makes that Paul is emphatic that he received his authority and apostolic commission directly from Christ. When you understand the significance of apostolic succession and the significance of tradition in the preservation of apostolic teaching, you understand that the apostle only is the apostle and thus is who he is in relation to the church in all ages because of his direct commission by Jesus Christ. And indeed, according to the memory of the church, when Paul uh, was in Arabia, uh, recapitulating Elijah's sojourn in Arabia, he received teaching directly from our Lord. Moreover, 2 Timothy 4.13, which instructs Timothy to gather up and bring the collected parchments and books to Paul in his next visit, suggests that the bishops of the churches were responsible for maintaining collections of the books of the New Testament, facilitating the identification of the canon. It was the bishop who was called to publicly read scripture and to exposit it in accordance with the apostolic tradition. So that part of his role in guarding the tradition through the spirit was the possession of a set of canonical books. This connects the concept of the New Testament canon with what we call ecclesiastical canons, both of which are linked to the office of bishop, both of which are linked to the liturgy, because ecclesiastical canons pertain to who is and isn't permitted to receive communion on a regular basis. This is why I think seizing copies of New Testament books became a focal point in persecution of Christians because the books of the New Testament were not merely important uh, for what they communicated, for the information found in them. Rather, the books of the New Testament were themselves symbolic. They distinctively marked out the church's identity and calling. Some evidence for this includes the popularity of the Codex in early Christianity. I may have mentioned this in my last video, but the Codex as a book form was really pioneered by the church. That is basically the bound book shape that we're familiar with in contrast to the scroll. In the second century, for example, uh, something like 70% of all of our codices are from Christian sources, despite Christian sources, Christian manuscripts being just a infinitesimal 
drop in the ocean of fragments that we have from this period of time. It was popularized by early Christianity. Unique scribal practices within the earliest Christianity, such as the Nomina Sacra, indicates a distinctive culture of writing and a distinctive interpretation of the significance of writing in the church as well. For those who aren't aware, the Nomina Sacra is special markings that would be placed around a divine name, such as Jesus Christ. This is one of the pieces of evidence that Jesus was worshipped as, as divine very consistently, very universally from the earliest period, uh, such as you know, God, Theos, and so forth. The interesting point is that while this scribal practice is very widespread in the early period, in the later periods it does generally pass out of usage, indicating that it potentially came from the apostles themselves, as the apostles committed a unique kind of culture to the early church. Because let's not forget that the logos of God, the word of God in his incarnation, creates the possibility for Christian philosophy and thought. All of the things that Paul mentions here take place in a liturgical setting. They take place in a context of a regular order of worship that's evidently centered on the Eucharist, as we'll see um, in other New Testament texts. The books of the New Testament are gathered and entrusted to the bishops of the church. They are read liturgically and they are expounded according to the teaching of apostolic tradition in this same setting. I'll note the interesting parallel here between the responsibility of the bishop and the responsibility of Ezra after the return from exile. Ezra reads the Torah aloud and exposits its significance in the Aramaic language for those who were present. The liturgical nature of the tradition in the New Testament period is confirmed in an examination of 1 Corinthians, where Paul uses technical terminology known in the wider Jewish world for the transmission of a chain of teaching. Many people aren't familiar with this terminology because it's, um, it plays a significant role in the uh, Gary Habermas's case for the resurrection, uh, where I have, you know, agreements and disagreements with the way he frames that case, but it's beside the point um, where in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul delivers the tradition that he has also received. And we'll talk about that text a little bit later in this video. But in uh, 1 Corinthians 11, uh, Paul commends the church in Corinth for maintaining the traditions even as I delivered them to you, using that word explicitly. The language of tradition and the apostolic delivery of the tradition is technical, and it is used in the context of offering uh, right ritual worship in the Eucharistic liturgy, with the Eucharist being identified as the church's altar. That's why uh, Paul uses the analogy that he does, saying that Israel, according to the flesh, eat sacrifices and are thus made participants in the altar. 
the same token to eat the Eucharist is to be a participant in the one who offers and is offered, namely Jesus Christ. And it is in this very context that Paul says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. We've talked before about how the sacrament of chrismation, of anointing, is a way of joining the baptized Christian into the specific, concrete life of the community of the church as it is earthed in his local area. One is joined to the body of Christ, and one is specifically realized as a member of the body of Christ according to the mode in which that body is present in the particular local church one finds oneself in. Thus, to be chrismated is to be anointed as a member of the priesthood of the New Covenant, to participate in the grace of the Spirit as it was transmitted from the apostles to the bishops, which is why the chrism must be anointed by a bishop. And in the West, the custom developed that only the bishop could chrismate to begin with at all, by discipline, though priests could still validly chrismate. It's beyond the point of this present discussion. Uh, but I just wanted to point that out because that's the context for what Paul says here. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And he says that to support the statement that they ought to remember me in everything, and maintain the traditions, even as I delivered them to you. That is, Christ has made himself present in the faith of the apostles, and it is by that faith and through that faith that one is joined to Christ. So one wants to be a member of Christ, but what does it look like to be a member of Christ? You follow the tradition of the apostles and it is through the apostles in whom the spirit dwells that one is joined into that single organism. And that's likewise the logic of the sacrificial system. Those who eat the sacrifices are participants in the altar. The church participates in Christ, but not in an undifferentiated way. Every member of the church is joined fully to Jesus Christ, and yet the one body has a distinctive and particular structure. One of Paul's major points in 1 Corinthians. And a major aspect of that structure is the hierarchical ministry that is built on the foundation of apostles and prophets. Paul moves from this to a discussion of head coverings for women in a liturgical setting, which he commends as the practice of the churches of God. That is what he talks about in the beginning of 1 Corinthians 11. This video is not specifically about that, except as it pertains to the language of tradition as it is applied in the New Testament. The language used of the Eucharist and the potential provocation of the Lord to jealousy Paul is warning against idolatrous feasts, saying that you ought not provoke the Lord to jealousy. The faithful feast offered to God is the Eucharistic feast, but the 
language of jealousy in conjunction with the offering of a tribute, that is a tribute of bread and of wine in Leviticus 2, with wine added when Israel comes into the land in Numbers. This tribute offering of barley is mentioned in the inspection of jealousy in Numbers 5. I talked about that in my last live stream. It's quite complicated and there's immense riches to this very strange text or a text that looks strange at first glance. But in Numbers chapter 5, the bride suspected of adultery must ritually drink down water that has been mixed with dust that was brought out from the tabernacle. Now, when she does that, she will either be blessed or cursed according to her guilt or according to her innocence. This ritual is never described as being concretely enacted, but it is many times described or the language found in this text is used as a symbol for God's inspection of Israel, for covenant fidelity. It's an enacted parable. Just as when Jesus curses the fig tree, the point is not fundamentally that Jesus wanted to eat physical figs and he was upset that he wasn't getting those figs. It was a parable about Israel as the fig tree which did not produce uh, good fruit. The bride, when she approaches for this inspection, must bring a minka or a tribute to the tabernacle. It's often rendered grain offering, but the literal meaning of the word is tribute, as when a king has subjects who then offer him tribute as a sign of their subjection to him as lord of the realm. She consumes the sanctified water mixed with tabernacle dust because the tabernacle dust has spent time in the presence of God has obvious implications for what we're talking about in 1 Corinthians 10 to 11 and for the divinity of Christ. Because 1 Corinthians 10 says that the cup that we bless and the bread that we break is the communion of the body and blood of Christ. And in Numbers 5, from which Paul is deriving a lot of this language, it is the presence of God that is mixed with the offering of bread. The ultimate key for understanding the theological context of head coverings in scripture uh, is in fact in this relationship because the woman who approaches the tabernacle to be inspected in Numbers chapter 5 wears a head covering which she ritually unbinds, rendered loosen, as she swears an oath to God. Now the exact meaning of this relationship and the blow-by-blow blow exegesis of 1 Corinthians 11 as it pertains to head coverings is uh, at the moment unclear to me, but that there is a textual relationship is very clear. Now what this shows, as far as what we're talking about, is that the Eucharist is a corporate inspection of jealousy, which means it is sacramental. It is sacrificial. It is something which happens at a temple or a tabernacle. It is, a, it is something which happens in a place with an altar or something corresponding to an altar. It is something which happens in a sacrificial context. And it is where the church, as the bride of God, approaches the Lord Jesus, who is the bridegroom, with a tribute of bread 
and DeWine. Tribute offering being described as the offering of remembrance in Leviticus 2. Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me or do this as my memorial. And the woman in numbers drinks the presence of God and is inspected because God goes down into her. And God's presence will either bless where what he inspects corresponds to his own life or it will destroy where it does not correspond to his own life because God is the paradigm of all existence. So for him to join himself to a thing which is out of step with his mode of existence, it simply will entail the destruction or disintegration of that thing. And Paul points to this very thing happening in the Eucharist, 1 Corinthians 11. For this reason, many are sick and some have died. This underscores the relationship of 1 Corinthians 11 to Numbers chapter 5, both of them are inspections which bring either blessing or curse. The language of the transmission of tradition is again used in 1 Corinthians 11.23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. Now this concerns the instructions for the celebration of the Eucharist and is clearly related to what Basil describes as the church's unwritten tradition. That is, the church's practice had from the apostles in carrying out its priestly and sacramental ministry. The apostles ultimately received it from Jesus the Messiah, who equipped them with the Spirit in their installation as rulers of the regathered and glorified people of God. The language of the 12 apostles sitting on 12 thrones in Matthew chapter 19, as Michael Barber points out in an article on the keys of Matthew 16, uh, is strongly elusive to texts throughout the Pentateuch describing the role of the Levitical priesthood. Note at Matthew 16 to 18 is given in the context of Jesus's condemnation of the Pharisees and the Levitical priesthood was not merely a sacrificial priesthood, or I should say its sacrificial ministry included the role of studying and teaching the word of God, we're told in Deuteronomy 33 and elsewhere. The apostles, so to speak, replace the halakhic authorities who sit on Moses' seat. Remember, Moses is a member of the tribe of Levi. I feel like very often people don't take that into account theologically in the way that they should. But the apostles, they sit on Moses' seat and they make rulings similar to the rulings described in Deuteronomy 17, rulings that are fundamentally about membership in the community of God, membership in the household of God, which is the theme of Deuteronomy. There's one people of God, one God, and then there is one household of God signified and embodied in the one place which the Lord shall choose to set his name. That is why Jesus says that if there are two or three of you present there, uh, present in my name, I will be there among you. And they baptize into the name of the Lord. The apostolic episcopate inherits the kind of authority to prudently sift through the revelation of God and apply it to their given situations. Of course, this doesn't entail that it is always exercised wisely, but the rulings predicated in this authority 
are collected in what we as Orthodox Christians call the canonical tradition, which is really a much better term than canon law, because there's no expectation that these things should be sortable into a single kind of constitution. Rather, what the canons are, at least a great deal of them, are particular rulings made by local and ecumenical councils to deal with situations that were present to them. And those canons are to be assimilated into the mind of the church, and the bishops in the councils still have the authority to render rulings on the situations facing the churches today. We'll talk more about the authority of councils in the transmission of tradition uh, in a future video. 1 Corinthians 15.3, finally, uses the language of formal transmission of tradition. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I, Paul, also received. What follows is a creed affirming the death of Jesus as Israel's Messiah in fulfillment of the scriptures. It affirms his burial and his resurrection and his appearances to the apostles and other witnesses. Given the prominence that the professions of death and the death and resurrection of Jesus take in the early creeds of the church, such as the Apostles' Creed, but there are many other examples uh, spread across the known world, and they have um, structural similarities which suggest a common source. And so I think we have some warrant in thinking that what we're looking at in 1 Corinthians 15.1-3 is a kind of liturgical creed that ought to be read in the context of 1 Corinthians 11, which uses the same language in reference to tradition that is embodied and transmitted in a liturgical context. So why mention the appearances? Well, I think that the appearances function here to affirm what we affirm in describing in the Nicene Creed the one holy Catholic an apostolic church. We see the apostolic leaders of the church all mentioned here. Peter, the twelve, James, and a group called the Apostles. All the Apostles, to which Paul adds his own name. What is most important is that this recitation of witnesses serves to authenticate not only the resurrection of Jesus, but these specific named individuals as the divinely designated and authorized bearers of the authority of Jesus as the Messiah. Just think of the major themes that run through John's Gospel about witnesses and the importance of divinely ordained witnesses. How the Father consecrated Jesus and sent him, so Jesus will consecrate the apostles and send them. And the Spirit is anointing Jesus as a witness, so Jesus breathes the Spirit on the apostles so that they might be witnesses. These themes and this kind of language is pervasive throughout the New Testament and especially in these texts in the Gospel of John. 1 Corinthians 8.6 could potentially have been part of the same or a similar creed. As the reference to one God, the Father, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, is ubiquitous in early and later Christian creeds. As is now well known, his text is an expansion of the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. So the one God is identified with the Father, the one Lord with the Son. Thus to say that the unity of Israel's God can only be elucidated with reference to Jesus 
And in Ephesians 4, this language of unity also includes the Spirit. And actually, we get something like that in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 as well, where we've got one body, uh, many gifts, so we've got one God, one Lord, one Spirit. The oneness and manyness of the gifts uh, are predicated on the oneness and threeness of God. In Deuteronomy, a major theme is the uh, maturation of Israel into unity. The Exodus generation symbolizes the protological, that is, the beginning of things, uh, and the conquering generation symbolizes the eschatological, is the growth of things into their maturity. Uh, there is one Lord, one people, and there's one place. The whole people are gathered together at this one place. Deuteronomy 17 gives the provisions for one throne, which is to be the linchpin of the unity of the nation after they have conquered it. The creed is today recited as the Eucharist is blessed and presented before God as bread and wine, as the church's gift of thanksgiving before it becomes the body and blood of Christ. The creed joins the gathered people of God together in a single faith, which they identify with the baptism into which they were baptized where the same creed was recited. That is, our baptismal creed, almost always the Nicene Creed, is also the Eucharistic Creed. What we recite in our baptisms, we also recite in our Eucharistic liturgy. And we see traces of this in the New Testament. When Philip has the Ethiopian eunuch baptized, he asks him, do you believe? And he says, I believe Jesus is the Son of God. And when Paul says, if you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and confess with your mouth that God raised him from the dead, or maybe it's the other way around, um, but belief and confession are instrumental in bringing about salvation be through the calling on the name of the Lord. And Acts 22 makes clear that calling on the name of the Lord, this is language that is utilized specifically in a baptismal and liturgical context. Calling on the name of the Lord is that which gives the family of many nations its internal unity, common fidelity to Jesus Christ. So it would make good sense for 1 Corinthians 8.6 to be recited as part of the same creed as 1 Corinthians 15.3-7. One God, one Lord, one people gathered around Jesus as Messiah under the authority of the apostles and those authorized by them since the resurrection of Jesus vindicates him as God's Messiah, and he thus has the authority to appoint his representatives in the church. And if Paul is indeed drawing on a common creed here, it makes a good deal of sense given the theme of 1 Corinthians, which is the unity of the church. Paul has heard that there's divisions in the church of Corinth. Were you baptized into the name of Paul? No, by implication, you were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus, who is one. Luke's prologue also uses this language of a chain of transmission. He describes his gospel as the writing down of that which was faithfully transmitted by the, quote, eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. Now, the ministry of the word is a phrase that is used in Acts 6.4, also written by Luke, to describe the authority and function of the 12 apostles. Their self-description also echoes Acts 2.42 where the apostolic church is said to have devoted itself to the apostles' teaching, the communion, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. The reference to breaking of the bread is a reference to the celebration of the Eucharist, and the use of the article in the 
prayers suggests some kind of organized liturgy. But where did this organization come from? If the apostles were baptizing people using a specific rite, and if they were celebrating their services using a specific form, where did they get it? If they're claiming Jesus' authority in celebrating the liturgy according to tradition and entrusting tradition to the church according to that authority, where and when did Jesus actually give this teaching? We see now Basil refers to the unwritten tradition in relation to the church's liturgical life and how the concept of an apostle receiving something from Jesus, which they then hand down, is concentrated in the New Testament references to liturgical worship. When he actually gave this pattern of life to the apostles will be the subject of my next video, which will be a semi-speculative argument, but I think a theory which explains a great deal. Thanks for listening.